Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Thank you, Sakile. Thank you, guys, for that warm welcome. All the way from the borough of Hackney. Hackney's the place to be, guys. It's beautiful. Come on. Victoria Park, just down the road. Absolutely lovely. Um, So this morning, uh, we are taking a short break from our series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, You'd know if you've been coming here for any amount of time that we've been going through Luke's Gospel. I've actually found it to be one of the best series that we've done as a church. I think going through a gospel book has been so life-giving. We've we've been able to unpack so much uh, through that one book. Uh, And we've still got a very long way to go. Like We're not even halfway through yet, which is insane, considering that we started in January. Uh, We might very well be doing it up until summer next year or even even further. But uh, we we wanted to take a little break uh, today just to to dive into some of the things that we felt uh, God uh, has been speaking to us as a church, speaking over us as leaders, but as a congregation. Um, and so I wanted to take this morning just to help us consider the question, like what, what does it mean for us to be a church? What does it mean for us to be a church on mission? And a lot of what I'm going to be uh, talking about today is off the back of what Joel shared last week. Uh, and if you were here last week, don't, I mean, don't worry if you weren't, but last week Joel shared uh, about the topic and theme of mission and evangelism. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I hear the word evangelism, quite often I find myself feeling quite a few different mixed emotions, and maybe you do too, depending on uh, your own experience of evangelism, depending on uh, how you feel the culture perceives evangelism. Uh, in fact, Joel shared a statistic last week that um, uh, almost gave us quite a, a realistic view of our generation and how they view this idea of sharing our faith with others. Uh, and actually, we saw that around 47% of the millennial generation believe that it is actually wrong to share our faith with others in the hope that they too may come to share that same faith. And it left me wondering, actually, like, what, is this, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for our faith? Like, what, how, does, how, how does it affect us as a church? What, what does it mean uh, for faith to, to thrive in, 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 a, in a world or in a city where people might be, at best, indifferent to it, or at worst, they might be hostile towards it? And it also left me wondering, what does it take for a church to, to sustain that vision, to sustain that faith in the long term? So here is where we turn to the passage that Sakile just wonderfully read for us in 1 Thessalonians, which I believe might offer us some help and perspective. So we're just going to go through it again and just reread it. Uh, So please do follow with me if you can. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Uh, Let's just pause there just for one second. Because last week, Joel mentioned uh, two things that are raised here in the very start of this passage, grace and peace. And if you remember, Joel actually shared that before we even begin to think about sharing our faith, we, we ought to be a people filled with grace and peace. That we ought to be a people of grace and peace. 
we looked a little bit at what does, what does that even mean for us as followers of Jesus? Like, what does grace mean for us? Why is it so desperately needed? Not just for us, but also the culture, the wider culture around us. Like, what does grace mean for us in a culture that is so divided and polarized? What does peace mean for us in a, in a society with, with record levels of depression and anxiety? Um, apparently, um, Google searches around the topic of anxiety have shot up by 100 and over 150% since the early 2000s. Like, what does it mean for us to be a people of peace in an age of anxiety? At the very start, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church is grace and peace. Let's keep reading. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of, of severe suffering with a joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom you raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, it might be helpful just to start with a little bit of context to this passage. So, uh, as you'll probably not be surprised, uh, Paul is writing to the church of the Thessalonians based in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was the capital of Roman Macedonia. Now, uh, as a city, it was along a, uh, an ancient trade route from Asia across Europe, like many major cities were in that time. And it is believed and is thought that there were around 200,000 people residing in the city of Thessalonica. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a lot by today's standards. I mean, I, I believe Tower Hamlets, the population of this borough, uh, is around 320,000 people. And this is a city of 200,000. But by ancient standards, this was huge. This was massive. I mean, the, only other, the city that was the biggest in the world at that time was Rome itself, and that had one million people. So Thessalonica was a, was a big city by ancient standards. And religiously, it was the, the, the center of many temples dedicated and devoted to the gods, the Roman and Greek gods of the time. And this devotion to the gods then trickled down into the everyday living and work and, and society of Thessalonian life. For example, the, the amphitheater that existed there uh, was quite renowned and popular for very sexually explicit content. People would go there to see violent, gory, gladiatorial battles, people killing uh, or fighting to the death. Alcohol, sex, gambling, all of these things were massive, major parts of the economy. 
And in fact, young men were expected to have a, a, a thriving, active sex life from a very young age with as many lovers and prostitutes and slaves as possible. So I think it's no surprise that when Paul comes along preaching the good news of Jesus, it was found to be very subversive to the culture. And it was found to be very bad for business. I think what I love about this letter is that it gives us one of the earliest windows into the Christian movement. 1 Thessalonians is probably the first letter that Paul ever wrote to a church. And in fact, we can find the backstory of this church uh, in Acts 17, where, where Paul is on his missionary trip uh, across to Europe, and he's journeying through Greece. He stops at this city, Thessalonica, and he spends about uh, a month there just sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus. And so he, while he was there, he spent a bit of time gathering together some local Jews and Greeks and helping to set up a young church community in the city. But of course, this came with quite a few problems. A few locals formed a mob and came to accuse Paul and all these new Christians of being disloyal to the Roman emperor, being disloyal to Caesar, saying that they're being loyal to this other king called Jesus. And as a result of this, Paul and a few others actually had to flee and run away to a city 43 miles away called Berea. And eventually they landed in Athens. But while Paul and a few of his companions had to flee, pressure and persecution didn't go with them. It remained in Thessalonica. It remained with the followers of Jesus who were established there. So when Paul arrives in Athens, he sends this guy called Timothy to head back to Thessalonica to find out how this church community is doing. Now, I can, you can imagine the the, the, the worry that Paul might have had. Like, had these guys caved under the pressure and the persecution? Had they abandoned and forsaken Jesus? Had they chosen to go back to their old way of life, a, a life that would have been very comfortable for them and very familiar to them? Had they lost all hope? There'd be huge temptations. There'd be huge temptations. They'd be so tempted to, to go back to a lifestyle that would have been easy and convenient for them. For most of them, paganism and idol worship was a life that they'd known. So it would, it would have been easy for them to compromise and assimilate back to the old way of living. And the other temptation would have been to completely withdraw from society, completely withdraw and isolate themselves and hide their faith, keep it secret and hidden and to themselves. But to his delight, the news that Paul gets back is that not only was the faith of this church community surviving, it was actually thriving. It was becoming known everywhere in the city and beyond. So despite, despite intense pressure, despite intense persecution, we see that there is, there is hope of faith, not just being in survival mode, but actually thriving in ways unimaginable. So Paul uses this as a moment to reconnect with the church community, to encourage them on their journey of faith. So how does he do that? How do you encourage a community of people to keep committed to the way of Jesus in a city that is at best apathetic towards their faith and at worst hostile? 
So he begins by reminding the Thessalonians of their shared identity and their shared calling. And we'll unpack these two a little bit more. He reminds them of who they are as a church, like what their identity is, what they're called to as a community. And then he reminds them that they are a church on mission together. So first, Paul reminds them of their shared identity as a church community. He says this. He, says that to the, he's, he begins by saying, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've just got a question for you. When, you. when you think of the word church, what images pop to mind in your mind? Like for me growing up, quite often when I think of church, I'd, I'd imagine very old, maybe uh, uh, gothic-looking buildings with pews and an altar, maybe with big, fancy stained-glass windows. And if you search the word church on Google, if you Google it, the, first, the very first definition that comes up is that it is a building used for Christian public worship. But what, what is the image that we get given in the New Testament. The picture we actually get given is, is of a gathered community of people, not a building. In fact, for the first 300 years of the church's life, there were no official church buildings. Like, I think it's incredible that we have this building. I think it's amazing that we get to come here and worship God every single week and actually throughout the week use it for other different things and activities. But the Bible's focus is never on a church building but it's on a community of people. In fact, the Greek word for church is ekklesia, which literally means the called out ones, a people with a calling. Um, I don't know about you, but I think it can be so easy to put our identity of who we are as a church in so many other things. I think um, just a few weeks ago, I went to preach at a different service in another location. And uh, before I got up to preach, I was introduced as one of the leaders of the trendiest church in London, Mile End. Now, um, of course, the heart behind it was, was lovely, very positive, and very well-meaning with a bit of light humor. But I couldn't help but feel a few mixed emotions about that. Like, firstly, it made me laugh because people genuinely think you guys are trendy. Like, I, don't, I, I mean, we have Kenny Crawford, for goodness sake, people know. Um, but on the other hand, it gave me a bit of pride, thinking, yeah, we're so cool, we're so young, we're so trendy, we're so hip and fashionable. But on the other hand, I then start worrying, like, is this, is this the only sort of reputation that we want to be building as a church? I think it's so easy to build our rep on how sleek our services might be, how good our worship might be, how diverse and young we might be, or how many trendy and cool jobs people in here have. Like, you guys are amazing. We can build our reputation on just, like, how cool this part of our city is. Our reputation can come from so many different things, and it can be tempting to put our identity in those things as a church. Now, please hear me out. I'm not against us being a cool and trendy church. I think you guys are a very cool and trendy bunch. Probably don't speak for myself. But let me be honest. If our sole aim as a church is to, is to be trendy and in fashion, 
then that is not what we're here for. That is not what I'm interested in doing. What should be the focus of our identity? What should we be known for as a community? So the Apostle Paul begins by reminding, that we're, reminding us that we're a community with a shared identity in God the Father and the Lord Jesus. The church was never meant to be a lifeless organization. It was always meant to be a living organism. We're always meant to have a living relationship with God and with each other. But notice something here. He doesn't say the church in Thessalonica or the church of the Thessalonians in Thessalonica. The emphasis here is that this church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Now, this is, this is interesting because in all his other letters, it's the other way around. Like to the Corinthians, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. To the Galatians, he says, to the churches uh, in Galatia. But to the Thessalonians, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. Now, what, what, what does that mean for us? Well, of course, both of those things are true, right? Like, whichever way round you put it, both of those statements are true. Whichever way round you say it. The church has two homes. The church is a community both in heaven and it's a community on earth. It's a community that lives in London, but it's also a community that lives in God. And I think this emphasis is important. Because although God's people live in this world, even though we're here in London, in one of the busiest, most diverse metropolitan cities in the world, yet our chief home, our most secure, most permanent home, from which we'll never, ever be dislodged, from which rent prices will never, ever increase, is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the single most secure place we will ever be. This is a single place that will never, ever change. See, our church building might change. Our location might change. Our neighborhood might change. Our city will definitely change. I've lived in London for decades. Believe you me, I have seen change. People come and people go. Our lives will also experience seasons of change. But God is unchanging. In him, we have our permanent home. We are both in this world, and we are also not of it. We are physically present, but we are called to be spiritually distinct. We have a shared identity, and with that identity, in that identity, we have a shared calling. What's this calling? We are called to be a faithful and distinct presence in the city. I guess the question is, well, how, how are we called to be distinct? Well, Paul mentions three ways that the Thessalonians were distinct. They were distinct in their faith, they were distinct in their love, and they were distinct in their hope. Now, you could spend a whole year unpacking every single one of these three themes. It's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. But the way that Paul uses these aren't just to refer to some inner values. They're always coupled with outer practices and outer ways of living in everyday life. They're not just something that we put on on a Sunday and then we take them off on a Monday and live differently throughout the rest of the week. No, we're called to wear them the whole way through. 
faith, hope, and love are worked out in very tangible ways. It's in the way that we use and view our bodies. It's in the way that we use and view our money. It's in the way that we use and view our work. It's in the way that we view our relationships with other people. It's very practical. It's very purposeful. It's a work of faith. It's a labor of love. It's an endurance of hope. Uh, Theologian John Stott would often put it that that faith keeps us looking upward towards God and helping us see everything from his perspective. Love keeps us looking outwards towards other people instead of caving inwards and thinking only for ourselves. And hope keeps us looking forwards to the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. That we're called to live upward in faith, to live outward in love, and to live looking forward in hope. Well, what does living outward in love look like in a world of division, of an, in a world of extreme individualism? What does living forward in hope look like in an age of anxiety? What does living with faith look like in a time of uncertainty? Uh, earlier this year, I sh- shared some uh, research done by several org- organizations, including uh, Hope Together, uh, and it was on research done for, about faith in the UK, uh, especially among those who are not in church. And, and in the research, they, they asked a series of questions to people who weren't in church about what, what some of the most common questions they had, or the biggest questions they had, about faith. And do you know what the co- most common question was? It wasn't, it wasn't, is the Bible true? It wasn't, is there a God even? The biggest question that people had on their minds is, is everything going to be okay? Is everything going to be okay? And apparently this is also like the most, one of the most Googled questions, at least in America, is everything going to be okay? Now, I I really wonder, when we look at our families or our friends or our colleagues who who don't know Jesus, how many of them are burdened with the weight of this question? Like, I wonder how many of us in this room are burdened with the weight of that question. Is everything going to be okay? Now, again, just to build on what Joel shared last week, uh, we're in a time where good arguments and mere words just won't cut it. Like, there has to be a power There has to be a conviction that comes with it. There has to be a real difference of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This same research that I mentioned uh, uh, explored what non-Christians often associate with the church. And you know, one of the top negative traits that they associated was hypocrisy. Basically saying one thing, but living a completely different way. Now, of course, it's it's hard to say how much of that... uh, stems from negative portrayals of faith, whether in media or films um, or or in pop culture, or how much of that genuinely stems from an experience that people have had within a church community. But I just want to say this. If you are here today and your experience of church community or of faith has been one of hypocrisy, then I am deeply, deeply sorry. That is not who we are called to be at all. That is not who we are. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, 
and deep conviction. I think this is deeply challenging for us as a community. Like, are we seeking to live out Jesus' words with power and deep conviction? This is one of the reasons we want, to, we want to start a men's discipleship cohort. Not just so we can just, you know, talk about things, catch up with each other, use mere words. No, we want that power. We want that deep conviction of the Spirit to live a life that is markedly different and distinct. Now, have we made it our priority to live with this deep conviction? Have we made it our our priority in our day, in our week? Like, can our children see that we are prioritizing God's word? Can our colleagues see that we live with a different mindset? Like maybe when we, when we have to model godly character, like exercise in self-control, maybe uh, keeping a cool head when we're being provoked. Maybe it's being a peacemaker when there's tension, either in your family or among your colleagues. Maybe it's speaking up for that colleague who's often overlooked and can't speak up for themselves. Maybe it's helping to shape a culture which is honest and forgiving. I remember when I was a, a new Christian, I became a Christian at the age of eight, around the age of 18. Um, and uh, at the time I was working in, a sales, uh, in sales uh, and I was trying to work out what this new faith thing meant for my work and my workplace. Um, and I quickly realized in sales, one of, the, one of the things that instantly I had to do was be honest. <laughs> you see, it can be very tempting to over-exaggerate your performance in order to one-up your colleagues or to please your bosses. It can be very tempting to over-promise on a product in order to just make the sale. I realized that I had to live with this deep conviction of of loving God and loving my neighbor. And that didn't mean I had to withdraw from the world of sales. No, I was very much involved, but I had to be there as a distinct presence. There had to be a difference. And by God's grace, like while I was there, I I got to actually share the good news of Jesus with at least three different people. And and just to be clear, they didn't start coming to church. I actually don't know where they are at right now. But all I know is when we're able to marry our words with this power and deep conviction, like opportunities open up for us to point people to Jesus. So first, we have a shared identity in God. Second, we have a shared calling to live out this identity as a community but we can't do the, the second without the first. Like we can't go out and just, just start loving people without first knowing what, what does this love look like and mean for us. So here is where Paul begins. He starts by saying, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. I've got a question for us. Like what, what is it that defines your relationship to others in this church? What is it that defines your relationship to each other? Is it our age? Is it our ethnic backgrounds? Is it whether we go to the morning service or to the evening service? 
Is it whether we're parents, whether we're married or whether we're single? Is it whether we're into the same Netflix shows or sports or hobbies? Is it whether we vote the same way? God forbid if that is the basis of our relationship in this church. What defines our relationship to each other? Well, the Bible tells us we are loved by God. We are chosen by God. This is where we begin. This is the foundation that we need. Christchurch London, my land, you are loved by God. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession. God loves you. He has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How has God shown that love for you? Well, he's shown it by this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were living a life ignoring God's love, while we were living for ourselves and our own kingdoms, while we were living for our own pleasures, our own success, our own achievements, while we were weighed down by our own repeated failures, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. And do you know what? I think simply knowing and believing that we are loved despite of ourselves is probably the greatest hunger our generation has right now. Like if you are new here today or you are exploring faith, may the one thing that you take from this whole sermon, and maybe, you've, maybe this talk has just raised more questions for you than answers, but if there's one thing that you take home today, May it be this, that Jesus loves you. He died for you. And he wants you to know that if you put your faith in him, you can live a life of love with God and with others. May that be the one thing that you take away from this. And with that one thing, you can know, you can know everything will be okay. You can know everything will be okay not because you've got your degree, not because you've got married, not because you've finally settled into a home, not because there's a new government in power, not even because you've got loads of friends or good health, not because you go to the gym and you get hench or you're on a keto diet. All these things can change and can even perish over time. But you can know everything will be okay because God loves you deeply. And despite how things are now, despite how things will be tomorrow, you can look upward to a God who loves you and gave his life for you. You can look outward and give your time freely and generously to loving others. And you can look forward to a hope that will never fade, that will never change. Last week, Joel mentioned um, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, it's an absolutely fantastic book. Like, I can't recommend it enough. If you haven't read, read it, it is a very worthwhile read. And the best definition that Philip Yancey could come up with about grace is this. Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. And grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me less. 
Like God doesn't love us because we can or can't do anything. He loves us simply because he is love. He is the very definition of love. Like he doesn't love you because you've decided to come to church on a Sunday or you've read the Bible enough or you've prayed enough this week. He loves you because he loves you. Even a parent's love for a child pales in comparison to God's love for you and I, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters loved by God. What happens as a result of this love? How did it shape the Thessalonian community and how ought it to shape us? Well, firstly, we see that they had a profound love for their church community. Like they gave themselves to each other. Paul's letter is actually brimming with affection. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. He uses this over 16 times in this short letter. I mean, you can read this letter in probably about five minutes. And yet in those five minutes, you'll be reading brothers and sisters, Adelphos, 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 over and over again. He repeatedly thanks God for their affection for each other. Secondly, they shared this love with others. They didn't just retreat into a silo. It wasn't just church on the Sunday and do whatever I want on a Monday. It was living as a faithful presence in their everyday life in the city that God had called them. They lived with uncompromising devotion to Jesus. They imitated his life in their city. And what did that result in? Well, that resulted in their example of faith being made known, not just to the city, but to the whole country. Like throughout Greece, throughout Macedonia, Paul says that people are talking about these guys. Like in the whole country, people were talking about how this church community were, were receiving God's word with joy. They were talking about how this church community were turning away from idolatry to serve the true and living God. Like I, I can only imagine like a Greek pagan who's just spent the day at work and met a Christian at work coming home to their family and saying, gosh, have you, have you heard about these guys? Like, they're nuts. Like, they're, they're, they're refusing to worship Aphrodite, a goddess of pleasure, of lust and sex and just fulfillment of all their desires. Instead, they're choosing to not have sex with everyone they meet They're choosing to surrender their lives completely to this God that they say is the one true living God. And what's crazier is like they're giving away all their money. Like all our gods, they they fight over power and status and territory. They hoard up all their treasures. Like surely that's that's what we're meant to be doing And what's crazier is that they say that this one true God, instead of holding on to his privileges and his power, he laid it all aside and actually chose to become a human being, live in the form of a slave, humble himself, and give his very life for us. How crazy is that? Like they're choosing to, to turn away from all these, all these other gods to serve what they say is the only true God, 
a God of love, a God who became man and died for our sins so that I could, I could be forgiven. Anthony uh, Billington, who is a friend of mine, I used to work with him, but he, he's written extensively on Thessalonians. And one of, the, uh, one of the things he writes is that the Thessalonians, they, be, they became a model of holiness and hope in a hostile world. I really love that. I think that's exactly what we see, that this church community became a model of holiness and hope in a hostile world. And they did this not by withdrawing themselves from the world, but they did this being present in a very new way. They were, no, they were known for their faith. They were known for their hope. They were known for their love. And maybe, just maybe, they were known to be trendy too. Like Christchurch London, my land. May we work, may we labor, may we endure all things in God to become a church known for our faith, to become a church known for our love, and become a church known for our hope. And maybe, just maybe, we can be known for being trendy and cool for Jesus as well along the way. But may faith hope and love be the three things that mark us as a church community. May we be in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't we stand and I'll pray. Paul ends his letter by saying, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. Heavenly Father, God of all peace, Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call us. Thank you, God, that in you we have an eternal hope. Thank you, God, that in you we have perfect love. Thank you that in you, regardless of our present circumstances, regardless of what we lack or what we have, we can know everything will be okay because you love us, you are with us, and you are for us. Lord Jesus, I pray over us as a church community. May we be filled with this love. May this love be the motivation of our hearts. And God, I pray that as we live out this love of God, we would be a holy and distinct presence in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, wherever you have called us to be. Lord, thank you that you promise to be with us. Lord, thank you that you stand with us through everything, thick and thin that you do not forsake us or abandon us. 
God, may you keep our soul, our spirit, our body pure, blameless, full of conviction and power. Lord, we come to you broken and in need. Would you forgive us afresh for the ways that we have not modeled your love, for any ways that we have been hypocritical, for any ways that we have said one thing but lived another. Lord, I pray that as these things are brought to the light, you would wash it away. As far as the east is from the west, the Bible says that he has washed your sins and taken them away. Lord, we put our hope in you. Let's refresh us in your spirit. Let the words that we have heard not just be words, but may be full of power, full of the Holy Spirit, full of conviction in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.